Well, as I just prayed, I do invite you to turn with me to Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. You'll find that on page 1009 in your pew Bibles, if you're looking at that. There's a few of you here who are uh, here for the first time. And the book of Hebrews is a word of exhortation, a sermon, if you will, to a group of people who are in a state of spiritual decline. Um, they were going through uh, uh, torture and persecution, and it was very difficult, and it was so bad that they were considering giving up their faith in Jesus Christ altogether. And for 12 chapters, the writer of Hebrews has been demonstrating to them the superiority of Jesus Christ. Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish Presbyterian minister in the first half of the 19th century, and I often wonder, there's a Chalmers Street or Chalmers Drive right here, I wonder if it's named for him, or maybe there was somebody named Chalmers living there uh, decades, uh, maybe a century ago, who knows. But Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish Presbyterian minister in the first half of the 19th century, and one of his most famous sermons uh, is entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You can read that online, and it is worth your time. It's a little, uh, little hard to read because of the difference in uh, language of the day versus language uh, then, but it's easy to understand what he's getting at. And his premise in this sermon is that idols of the heart cannot simply be removed... They must be replaced. When you try to change a person who has their heart set on the things of this world, whatever it might be, it might be a bad thing, it might be even a good thing, but it's not the Lord, then you might try to change them by showing them the vanity of the things of the world. And you're trying to change their mind by showing them the futility of putting their trust in these things. Or you can set forth a superior object for them to set their affection on, to set their love on, their heart on, namely God. And that's the premise that he's making. That's his contention, that that method is superior. To not love the world, you have to find something better to love. Taste and see that the Lord is good is the way the psalmist put it. And that is what the writer of Hebrews has been saying. And, and now here in chapter 13, he is addressing issues that are indicative of people who are backsliding. And we've already seen these marks, uh, a couple of marks, love for others grows cold in the first couple of verses when you're backsliding. And last week we saw that uh, in times of uh, backsliding, sexual morality becomes lax and marriage is not valued. And today, he's going to warn us of the love of money and discontentment. So with that in mind, let's stand together and hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And may God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. You may be seated. 
Well, the scriptures have a lot to say about the love of money, greed, or and or covetousness. And I want you to answer a question in your mind right now. And the question is this, just answer it in your mind. Are you greedy? Are you a lover of money? Well, I would not be surprised if there was not one person here today who said yes to that question. No one thinks they're greedy. It's one of the most difficult sins for us to detect in ourselves. And there's uh, several reasons for this. You know, if you commit murder, it's pretty obvious. You know, you shoot someone that you hate and they're dead. So there's no denying that you have committed that sin. But how do you know if you are committing the sin of greed or covetousness or, or the love of money? Part of that reason is that, that uh, greed is primarily a heart sin. Now, that's kind of a bad way to put it because all sins have their beginnings in the heart. I mean, murder starts because there's a hatred in the heart for someone. Uh, lust is the beginnings and manifest, manifested in fornication or adultery. You know when, you've, when you're committing adultery. There's, there's no mistake about that. But greed is in the heart. The love of money is in the heart. And how does it come out? Now, the problem is it comes out in very socially acceptable ways in our culture. America is so affluent, uh, and we are so materialistic. It's just the air that we breathe and the water in which we swim in our culture. We're completely surrounded by greed and materialism, and it is the norm. So it is very difficult for us to de detect greed in ourselves. Think about the advertising that we have. It is all based on materialism. They're trying to make you feel like you need this because they just, it's actually a greedy act because they're trying to get you to spend your money on something that you don't need. That is the basis of our advertising. And, and television is fueled by advertising. Uh, the only reason we have television shows on, really, is not just to entertain us, but so that they can get advertising money and so the advertiser can get you to buy their products. The whole system is based upon greed and materialism. So that's why it is very difficult for us to see greed in ourselves, but the likelihood is that we're all a bit greedy, especially in our nation, the wealthiest nation on the earth. Our standard of living is so much higher than, than most everywhere else in the world. And, and when you go and visit a real impoverished country and see how they live their lives, and for, the, for many of them, they're very joyful and happy and satisfied with the meagerness of their living. They don't know any different. But we have grown accustomed to a very high level very high standard of living, and it's very hard for us to think that we're greedy because everybody around us is the same. So, we're talking about greed today, 
And uh, you might say, well, well, I'm not wealthy, so I'm obviously not greedy. Well, you don't have to be rich and wealthy to be greedy. We don't have to be like John D. Rockefeller, uh, who uh, was, was uh, asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? Of course, he was a billionaire. He was the first billionaire in America. And his response was, just a little bit more. Or uh, you don't have to be like Paul Getty, J. Paul Getty, who was asked in an interview, if you retired now, would you say your holdings would be worth a billion dollars? And Getty replied, I suppose so, but remember, a billion doesn't go as far as it used to. Obviously, these are extreme examples, but how many of us would, would, who sit here would say, I wish I had his problem? You know, I wish I had a billion dollars. See, We would love to have that much money. But the fact of the matter is there are plenty of middle class. In fact, most Americans think they are middle class, whether they are, are or, or not. Many upper class people think that they're middle class in the income, when we're talking about income. So plenty of middle class and poor people are obsessed with money. You know, have you ever thought, boy, if I just had some money, that would solve all my problems? That's idolatry. That's greed. That's materialism. So, we're talking about greed today. Don't say, well, this isn't, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich. I'm just like everybody else. It applies to all of us. And I want to look at two things today with some sub-points. First, I want to talk about the love of money, the seductive nature of it, of money, and the idolatry of money. And I, and I want to also speak about contentment. What is contentment? And what's the reason that we should, should and can have contentment? And what's the result of being content? And then we'll conclude with a few other remarks about God's promises. Well, the love of money. Are you a lover of money? That's what we're exploring. And, and how can you know? Well, we all know that money is seductive. Why? Why is it so appealing to us? Well, money allows us to obtain the things that we desire. Not just the things that we need, but the things that we desire. It empowers us. Just think of all the things that you can get from money. And I'm not just talking about a new car or a new dress or a new suit or any of these material possessions, but we're talking about deeper things like security. Security. You know, if you, you uh, have money in the bank, then you don't have to worry about a lot of things in, in your life. You can pay your house note or your rent. You can buy food. You can be insured that you have not only what you need, but some things that you want. And you can retire and know that you can live for the future. So, yes, money allows us a, a level of security. It also uh, opens up the doors of influence and power. The more money you have, the more you are welcomed into certain circles and have influence in your uh, spheres uh, that in which you move and live, and power even. Money can also gain, gain you approval from others and appreciation from others. You can use your money to win friends and influence people. Money obviously can give us comfort 
and pleasure. You can spend a little extra money and go to the nice restaurant. You can spend a day at the spa if you have enough money. You can buy the 84-inch television screen to watch shows on. Now, not all of us use money for all of these things because you you can detect it by whether you hoard money or whether you spend money. Um, If you are looking for money to provide you with security, you're likely to not spend it. You want it in the bank. You want it there to give you that sense of security. But if you're one of these people that likes to enjoy the creature comforts of life, you're going to spend that money. It's not going to be in your bank account long. You're going to get the, the bigger, the better, the nicer, the fancier, the money comes out, the love of money comes out in different ways in our lives. And whether you have it or don't have it, you, you can still be uh, living for money and the, the things that it can give you. 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. This is a often misquoted verse. Uh, people say the love of money is the root of all evil. That's not true. It's the root of all kinds of evils. We've already seen some. We're, we're using it as a God substitute to get security when only God can truly give us that, etc. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's where the people that, to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing, they are wandering away from the faith. And from, from what he's writing here, we have to assume that they are seeking to have more money. They want to be in a better economic position. It makes sense because the people in the first century suffered. As Christians, it was illegal. And in order to join a guild, a professional guild like a union, in order to get a job, you had to say, Caesar is Lord. They worshipped Caesar in those days. And if you weren't willing to say, Caesar is Lord, then you could not join the union, the guild, and you could not work. So these people were suffering economically because they were not willing to say Caesar is Lord because only Jesus is Lord. So the draw of economic security was causing them to wander from the faith. They felt that money was the answer to their problems. That brings us to the idolatry of money. And, you know, some of you may not be familiar with that term, idolatry or the concept of idolatry in our lives, uh, but idolatry is simply setting your heart, all your uh, worship, your affection, your joy, everything upon something besides God. Anything other than God is an idol. And everybody does it. Everybody worships something. Even an atheist has an idol. Everybody. We are worshiping creatures There is something in everyone's life that is most important. It is impossible not to value some things over others. Somebody, any human being that lives, there's something at the top that is most important to them. That's your idol. That's what you're worshiping. That's what's most important to you. So that's the idolatry aspect. And money is a great, as we've been saying, 
uh, a great temptation to take that spot at the top. We might be familiar with the idiom, almighty dollar. You've heard that before probably, the almighty dollar. It was uh, commonly attributed to Washington Irving way back in the early 1800s. He used it in a story writing about uh, a village, a Creole village, and this is what he said about it. It was a poor, impoverished, rural village, and he's describing it. The almighty dollar, that great object of universal devotion throughout our land, this is in 1837, by the way, already they're worshiping the dollar. The almighty dollar, that great object of universal devotion throughout our land, seems to have no genuine devotees in these peculiar villages, and unless some of its missionaries penetrate there and erect banking houses and other pious shrines, there is not knowing how long the inhabitants may remain in their present state of contented poverty. Irving recognized the idolatry of money that existed even in the 1830s, and here's this place that was kind of preserved from that. They were content in their poverty in this little village. But he uses the terms devotion and missionaries and shrines, banks. Those are, those are terms of worship, idolatry. Well, he didn't think of this on his own. Jesus spoke of idolatry and in, in money in terms of idolatry and worship in numerous places. In the Gospels, Luke 16, Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See, you, Jesus uses terms, love, devotion, service, master, in reference to money. In the book Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller, he has a, a great uh, explanation of all of this. He says, Lovers of money are those who find themselves daydreaming and fantasizing about new ways to make money, new possessions to buy, and looking with jealousy on those who have more than they do. Trusters of money feel they have control of their lives and are safe and secure because of their wealth. Idolatry also makes us servants of money. Just as we serve earthly kings and magistrates, so we sell our souls to our idols because we look to them for our significance, love, and security, trust. We have to have them, and therefore we are driven to serve and essentially obey them. When Jesus says that we serve money, he uses a word that means the solemn covenantal service rendered to a king. If you live for money, you are a slave. If, however, God becomes the center of your life, that dethrones and demotes money. If your identity and security is in God, it can't control you through worry and desire. It is one or the other. You either serve God or you become open to slavery to mammon, which means possessions or stuff, things, material goods. Nowhere is this slavery more evident than in the blindness of greedy people to their own materialism. Jesus says it strongly in Luke 12, 15, take care and be on your guard against all 
covetousness. Take care, be on the watch, and be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's a real temptation for us. And Jesus is telling us to watch out for it. Now, money can give you a sense of security. I mean, if you have a nice retirement, you can feel good about the future. You can feel like, okay, I'm okay, I'm taken care of. It, it can give you influence to the halls, uh, access to the halls of influence and power. It can give you pleasure and comfort. But it's only a temporary illusion. You remember uh, Jesus told a parable about the farmer who uh, had a plentiful harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And that's the vanity of loving and being devoted to money. Yes, it gives you a temporary security, but you're going to die. And you can take it with you when you go. And what will become of you for eternity? Yes, you can have influence here, but you'll be lost forever in eternity. It can give you pleasure and comfort here, but it leads to hell and torture in the hereafter. It's just a temporary illusion. It's the, the scheme of the devil to distract us from what is most important in life, and that is the kingdom of God. So that's the vanity of loving money and the, the seductive nature of it and the idolatry that we're prone to when it comes to money. Well, the second thing he says, it's kind of like what Paul does when he says, put off this and put on this. He says that, you know, put on, put on truth, put away lying and falsehood, etc. So he's saying, don't be a lover of money, but be content. Now, what is contentment? The word used there means to be sufficient or adequate for a particular purpose with the implication of leading to satisfaction, to be sufficient, to be adequate, to be enough. Okay? To be content means that you're satisfied with enough, with what you need, with what is adequate for your life. And we're talking about needs, not wants. Now, where we draw that line, uh, we're influenced by our society and our culture, and that shouldn't be the case. Um, we should measure it by God's standards. But we're talking about needs, and what do we need? We need food, clothing, shelter. And we need what is enough. 1 Timothy 6, 7 through 8 says, We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Can we say that today? We'll be content with just having the basics. Food, clothing, shelter would be nice as well. But I guess Timothy was willing to move around. So contentment, being satisfied with what is enough, what is adequate for your life. And that's different for different people. 
for sure, with, with their different needs. But he tells us here the reason we can have contentment as believers, as he's addressing believers here. Be content with what you have, second part of verse 5 says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God will never leave his people, and he will not forsake them. So he is always with you, and that word forsake means that there is some sort of commitment that God has to us. God is committed to his people. And if you, you forsake someone, you're, you're letting them down. You're not honoring your commitment to them. But God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That, those words are quoted from Joshua, chapter 1. Joshua is taking over for Moses, going to lead these, this group of, large group of Israelites into the promised land to drive out the nations that are there, ready for battle. Is he up for the task? It's a daunting task to lead these Israelites who have been wandering in the desert 40 years. Uh, they've been rebellious. They haven't been faithful to the Lord. And Joshua's being called to this task, and God is giving them the promise, don't worry, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what confidence he had because of that. And, of course, they went in and took and occupied the promised land. Jesus said, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So even the necessities we don't need to worry about. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So when we put our trust in the Lord and put him first in our lives and replace our love for money or love for anything else with the Lord, we can live with confidence because God is going to take care of us. He will give us what we need. He will provide for us. And that's the reason for contentment. We can be content because God, our Heavenly Father, knows our needs and he will not let his children do without and then we see the result of commitment, which is succinctly, no fear. He quotes Psalm 118.6 here in verse 6. We can confidently say, with these things in mind, that God is with us and won't forsake us. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? We read it in our uh, assurance of pardon today, Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? See, the Lord is our helper. The Lord is our helper. And how has he helped us? 
How has he helped us? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, and Jeff and Sarah sang a hymn based on it for our prelude this morning. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the commitment that the Lord has to his people to make us his people. Jesus had infinite wealth. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords in heaven on a throne, and he left that, laid aside his glory, and came and became poor, a poor man, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. He had infinite wealth, and humans are spiritually impoverished, and he became impoverished, so that we might become spiritually rich. Jesus gave up all the treasures of heaven to make you his treasure. He was abandoned on the cross. He was forsaken by the Father. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he endured that so that we would never be forsaken. He died for our sins that we would be forgiven. And we would be welcomed into the family of God, valued children that the Heavenly Father will certainly take care of for eternity. We are His, and He is ours. So, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That is a verse that's taken out of context often because... People like to say that all these things will be added to you means whatever I want. No. Seek first the kingdom of God and he will provide what you need. Everything that you need. But that's where the priority is. When it comes to money, we need to be content with what is adequate, what is sufficient, and the rest use it for the kingdom of God. And that's a something for you to meditate upon on. How can I use my worldly goods for the kingdom of God? That's the priority. So what are you seeking today? What are you really going after in your life? Is it a bigger bank account? Is it more power and influence? Is it pleasure and comfort? Is it a sense of security? You can only find that truly in the Lord, not in your bank account. Money is just a tool that we can use for the furtherance of God's kingdom. Consider these things and cry out to the Lord and ask Him to replace the idols of your heart with Himself. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we do pray that You would forgive us for our love of the world. Lord, our hearts grow cold and We lose our love for you. and We pray, Lord, that we would once again have a clear vision of your great love for us manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. We love because he first loved us, but, Lord, sometimes we forget how he has loved us. So we pray, Lord, that you would impress that once again upon our hearts that we might love you more. We pray that you would replace the idols of the heart and and help us, Lord, to... to to only worship you there. May you become the most precious thing. May we not want anything else in this world but you. 
And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.